Well, good afternoon, and thank you again for joining us here on the Free Thinker Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Vela, and today we will be continuing our presentation of my book review of Disproving Christianity and Other Secular Writings, second edition, by David McAfee and put out by Dangerous Little Books. Today, we will be reviewing the chapter entitled Contradictions in Scripture and in Practice. If you have any questions or comments about what you hear, you can find me on my blog at www.logicaltheism.blogspot.com. Don't forget that hyphen, www.logical-theism.blogspot.com. You can email me at tylervella at gmail.com, or you can join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash groups slash the Freed Thinker Podcast. And with that, on with the show. Contradictions in Scripture and in Practice We have now finally reached the portion of the book where McAfee begins to address actual biblical passages and what a journey it has been. However, what we have discovered along the way should not be jettisoned when we begin down this next corridor of the book for one simple reason. We have already established several things about McAfee's interaction with biblical content, Christian hermeneutics, and theological interpretation, that they are wholly uninformed, hopelessly reductionistic, deceptively misrepresented, though my hunch is that this is more out of ignorance than intentional spite, and entirely too shallow to even begin to be considered adequate. One major problem that we will find added to this going forward is not only the removal of centuries of various nuanced and robust treatments of the problems posed in the book thus far, but also, and I will point this out as we go, that while McAfee has previously removed the Bible from its theological context in the church, he now will remove the Bible from any context at all. The passages that McAfee will cite are never handled with considerations or even comments concerning their literary, grammatical, theological, sociological, cultural, historical, polemical, or illocutionary contexts in mind. Verses just become free-floating proof texts without any context and treated as if they were written two or three minutes ago in the next room rather than two or three thousand years ago halfway around the world to a completely foreign audience. This age does not make them wrong, invalid, or even antiquated in the polemical sense, but it does mean that they were written in a certain and very specific context that informs what the original authorial intent might have been, both human and divine. As with the previous chapters, this title of this chapter is also problematic. Often what McAfee is going for are more like factual errors rather than contradictions, and almost nothing is said about any kind of contradiction, quote, in practice, whatever that would even mean. So, let us now briefly explore this chapter concerning biblical passages and McAfee's suggested contradictions. Jesus falsely predicts his own return. Here McAfee attempts to lobby passages like Matthew 24, verse 32-34, and Revelation 1, 7-8, to demonstrate that Jesus may have predicted his return, but that he fully believed it to be within one generation of the prediction. Footnote. I will actually not respond to Revelation 1, 7-8 passage since it actually makes no reference to the time of Jesus' return, but only that he will return. 
Thus, it really serves no purpose in the objection, a fact McAfee seems to miss. Footnote 53. While this will be a short treatment here, I have written a full-length series entitled Did Jesus Predict the Rapture Within 40 Years of His Death that can be found on my blog. In fact, the surprising thing, and this can only be attributed to the fact that he has done on an abysmally shallow level of research, if any, is that McAfee seems to think that because some Christians throughout history have made false predictions, that this is somehow a problem for the biblical text, when in fact the precise objection is one made commonly by most Christians worldwide and throughout history against what has come to be associated with modern dispensationalism or in the history of premillennialism that has been prevalent in American Christianity. McAfee's own reference to the rapture, a doctrine exclusive to dispensationalists, a theological Johnny-come-lately first advocated at the end of the 19th century by John Nelson Darby, in conjunction with this objection, shows that he himself is unaware that his proposed reading of the passage only addresses the overwhelming minority reading and the long history of the church. While some like Walverud, Ryrie, Jenkins, LaHaye, or Lindsay do take this to mean something other than the first century listeners would have, most have known that Jesus was in fact talking about a first century fulfillment. The problem with McAfee's critique is not the time frame of Jesus' prediction, but that it misses exactly what Jesus predicted. Was Jesus predicting his imminent return as the end of the world, or was Jesus predicting something else entirely? Jesus' statements are actually varied and comprise a response given to a two-part question posed by his disciples, quote, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of this age? Matthew 24, verse 3. Jesus' reply thus answers both of those questions through what is called telescoping. This means that he begins from the present generation and moves on to the end of the age, but not really in chronological order. First century Jews were almost universally more concerned with theological or thematic development of thought rather than strict chronology. He even gives us the interpretive grid through which to use when he states concerning the false Christs, the wars, the rumors of wars, the rising up of nations and kingdoms, of famines and earthquakes, that they are, quote, but the beginning of the birth pains, verse 24, four, verse 8. That is, there are events that begin a long, painful process. It is not a singular event in view, but an epoch. While I do not have the time or the space to write a full exegetical treatment of this whole section in Matthew 24, known as the Olivet Discourse, and which I have done so elsewhere, suffice it to say that Jesus was not actually referring to his second coming by the end of our generation but that they would see the signs that the culmination of history has begun, principally in the abomination of desolation, the siege of Jerusalem, and the utter destruction of the temple. Notice Jesus does not even say that they will see the return of Jesus, but they will see all these things, chapter 24, verse 34. So the most common interpretation of this passage by Christians is that Jesus 
did in fact prophesy about events that would occur within one generation of the sermon, such as the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, his bodily return to earth was simply not one of them. Footnote. Eschatology is the theological branch that deals with the many, what many people call the end times. The problem with that question is that it isn't really accurate. It should be said to be dealing with anything pertaining to final things. The difference may not be totally obvious, so an illustration is in order. Eschatology, defined as the end times, means that it is addressing only those things which occur at the terminus of history. So it would be like only talking about the last chapter of a book, for example. Whereas when we define eschatology to mean all things pertaining to the final things, we mean anything that might foreshadow, highlight, lead up to, inaugurate, etc. events or themes found in the end of days. So if we think of the book, we might think of reading a book and noticing all kinds of foreshadowing, allusions, themes, archetypes, antitypes, etc. that we did not even recognize until we finished the book the first time. This means that all kinds of things in the Bible are eschatological, even though they are not, strictly speaking, part of the end times. This raises a new issue that we should keep in mind. That is, the Christian doctrine of realized or inaugurated eschatology, or more colloquially put, the already and the not yet. For most of history, the history of the church, even when large swaths of millenarians they held to an eschatological view that was built under the framework of inauguration, continuation, and consummation. What this means is that end times are not so end timey. For example, the kingdom of God was inaugurated with the coming of Jesus as king of the Jews, continues as he exercises dominion over all creation generally and the church specifically, and is consummated when all powers and authorities bow the knee to his authority when he comes in power at the final judgment. Or we can see that our salvation was inaugurated at the death and resurrection which procured it for us, continues as believers continue to come to faith in Christ, and is consummated when our bodies are resurrected on the last day to enter into the eternal rest with God. Once this framework is understood, it is almost impossible not to see it underlying nearly all of the future promises of God. When we examine portions of the Bible that seem to be dealing with future, quote, predictions, there are almost always intrinsic inaugural threads that run through them all. It is for this reasons such it is for reasons such as this that the kind of wooden literalism that McAfee tries to force all biblical passages to adhere to is nothing more than the imposition of his own skepticism onto the text to force it to say something other than what the original author could have possibly meant for it to say in ancient Israel. 120 years. For this objection, McAfee actually divides it into two parts that address two different verses. The first is from Genesis 6, 6 3, which states, quote, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. End quote. And Psalm 90.10, quote, The years of our life are 70, or even, by reasons of strength, 80. 
Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They soon, they are soon gone, and we fly away. End quote. He sums up the problem by saying, quote, This verse indicates, and most biblical scholars agree, that the Lord is limiting each human lifespan to 120 years of age. End quote. Page 47. I am sure by now that you may be able to guess the problem with McAfee's objection without even needing to look it up. Per usual, McAfee is just flat out wrong. Most biblical scholars in discussing Genesis 6 do not agree that God is limiting each human's lifespan to only 100 years. Here, some kind of reference in support of this assertion would be beneficial. In fact, should we think that the author of Genesis would be so foolish as to make this claim and then contradict such a factual claim within just several chapters when he gives ages that exceed 120 years? So, does Genesis 6-3 promise that no person will ever exceed a 120-year age cap? Again, even a simple reading of the passage in the narrative in which it is found, which explicitly states that people after the flood live much longer than 120 years in Genesis 11, reveals that this is not the case. This is found in the Noahic cycle in the book of Genesis and is not a prediction of the lifespan of humans in general, but of the time span before the flood in particular. Notice that this statement is explicitly followed by God's comment, quote, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Chapter 6, verse 7. The very passage itself militates against the reading that this is a prediction of the lifespan limit for all human life, but is rather a pronouncement of judgment that was about to befall the sinful humanity of Noah's day. Since Genesis 6.3 does not teach us there is a lifespan cap, there is no contradiction between the verse in Psalm 90, as McAfee so baldly asserts. Prayer versus Free Will we will start to see that McAfee begins to rephrase and recycle the same argument in multiple places. Does he think that presenting it multiple times will somehow make it stronger? Since the question raised here is really an extension of the divine providence versus human free will discussed and answered above, I will bypass this objection for brevity's sake so as to avoid unnecessary repetition of responses. God's happiness. This objection is also just a restatement of the previous objection to the perfection of God and the imperfection of nature. As we stated before, these verses concerning God's regret over creating humans who sin are quite easily explained as the anthropomorphisms and illocutions of analogical language. I will not waste time on repetition here either. Warrior God versus Peaceful God here McAfee states the common objection, one alluded to previously and will be recycled again as we will see soon, about the Christian concept of a peaceful God not squaring with the vengeful warrior God of the Bible. Since I have addressed this before and will again towards the end, let me simply make two statements about the objection in its current form. To start, I would simply like to point out that anti-theists mock God heads and tails, that is, God is damned if he does, and damned if he doesn't. Antitheists mock God for executing swift and total destruction for the sins of humanity in the Bible, for that is what the passages that McAfee's cite are all about. 
They describe a God who will no longer allow one people to oppress, rape, pillage, murder, worship false deities through bloodletting, prostitution, and human sacrifice, to get rich through oppression and promote vicious and violent societies, and so he pours out his wrath on them in perfect justice. To be blunt, they got what they deserved. However, anti-theists also mock God for not executing swift justice when people sin today. I remember listening to a debate featuring the brilliant rhetorician and devout anti-theist Christopher Hitchens, in which he blasted God for his vengeance against Sodom and Gomorrah, which were in fact judged for something radically more disturbing than simple homosexuality, and then within five minutes was blasting God for sitting back with folded arms doing nothing while people were victimized today. Footnote. Hitchens is, act, is always delightful to listen to just for the sheer beauty of language and swift wit, but one marvels at the fact that he does not realize the incongruity of his arguments. He is a polemicist, not a logician or philosopher. It is odd to demand an audience to marvel at the cruelty of a celestial being who would pour down fire to consume a thoroughly wicked people, and then turn around and demand them to marvel at the utter immorality of not raining down fire upon every rapist and murderer that there ever was. Hitchens stated, quote, How dare God unfold his arms over the plains of Sodom, but keep them folded over Auschwitz? End quote. While I cannot say why God would punish the one and not the other, to demand that God is evil when he executes his wrath, and evil when he does not, seems to be utterly unreasonable, not to mention the very deep problem that this poses for atheism. Hitchens lambastes Christianity for believing, or so Hitchens seems to think they believe, that heaven sits by with folded arms as the holocausts unfold below. Firstly, is the fact that Christian theology does not say that heaven sits by with folded arms, but that God himself comes down from heaven to enter into suffering on our behalf, so that not only can God redeem us when we do violence to others, but also that he can bring justice to those who do violence to us. Jesus was not just in heaven, but in Dachau, Brockenwald, Auschwitz, and the Gulags. But secondly, and equally important, is the problem that this poses for atheism. As with the problem of evil, if atheism is correct, there is no problem. Evil just is, but it is not, indeed cannot be evil in any meaningful sense of the word. We would be living in a universe where there is no why. Hitchens might want to accuse heaven of indifferently watching on, but if he is right, then the universe actually is indifferent. In Christianity, there is hope for ultimate redemption, restoration, justice, and peace. Wrongs can be made right. However, if Hitchens is right, then there is no hope, no redemption, no restoration, no justice, no peace. The victims of great crime suffer and die and often the offender will get away with it. Even if Hitchens is correct, and that is the cold, hard truth, he has no basis to make the emotional appeal to heaven folding its arms and watching on, as if his position is any better when it is in fact worse. The second comment is in regards to McAfee's statement that such acts of God in the Bible are, quote, acts of unnecessary violence page 53. 
Here the comment is framed in a wholly question-begging manner. This is of a similar case mentioned above, for McAfee to say that the just acts of God are actually unnecessary, he must presume he has the very thing that he himself precludes any being from having, that is, omniscience. How does McAfee know what an, a necessary act of justice would be for the creator of the universe? I think God's question to Job would apply here. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Job 38, 1-7 Does McAfee have the ability to tell God how God should run his universe? Where was McAfee when God laid the foundations of the universe? Genesis and the Order of Creation In this objection, McAfee attempts to draw a contrast between the created order and the days therein. This is a common objection, but to be honest, I find I'm quite baffled as why so many skeptics think it's so powerful. Here McAfee states that on the first day God made light, but it was not until the fourth day that God created the sun and the moon. This objection baffles me for two reasons. Well, two besides the procedural and interpretive ones about handling the creation account listed above. First is that a very common response to this, even by scientists, is that this is precisely how it would have appeared through the hydration cycle of the cloud cover on the early earth. In fact, the order of the days of Genesis 1 has been confirmed even through skeptics, even though skeptics think that it has not, because there is so much debate over the timeline. The debate is almost never about the order of the days of creation, but always about the length of time that creation spans. What has surprised so many people is that Genesis 1 is entirely accurate to the hydraulic cycle of the early earth, as it would have appeared to someone standing on the earth and looking out. First, dim light would have shone through, much like we see on a cloudy day ourselves, and then only after a lengthy time would we ever actually perceive the sun and the moon and the stars. However, before someone comes to the conclusion that I think we should even read Genesis 1 as if it were a scientific account of how God created the universe, or even that I think it is talking about the material creation of the universe, they should revisit my comments above on the days of creation of Genesis 1. I actually take the view that it is a polemical expression of an ancient Near Eastern functional ontology meant to discount other creation myths of the surrounding cultures. While footnoted previously, let me here recommend John Walton's excellent lecture, Reading Genesis Through Ancient Eyes, that can be found in video format in several places online. The second problem, which is almost related to the first, is that there is no contradiction between the appearance of light followed by the appearance of the sun and the moon, or does McAfee think that the only light we see is from the sun and the moon? During this objection, McAfee also reveals what could be a lack of basic literary analytical skills, something much more vital than basic reading comprehension. 
When McAfee cites Genesis 1.27 as proof that God created Adam and Eve simultaneously and then seeks to show a contradiction with Genesis 2.21-23 as saying that Adam and Adam was created first, then Eve, he makes such a juvenile blunder that I'm surprised that he even believes it himself. The problem is not in the verses that he cites, but in the ones that he does not. Notice that Genesis 1.27 is a summation of the final day of creation, not a detailed statement. We should also realize that there is a transitional verse that takes place. Quote, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no brush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man, formed the man of the dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. End quote Genesis 2, 4-7 What is occurring in Genesis 2 is a recapitulation of the creation account in Genesis 1. This is not a new account. It, it is a, a zooming in. It is a common Hebraic literary device known as a narrative couplet. Genesis 1 merely states that on the sixth day God created man and woman. Following the transitional statement of Genesis 2, 4 through 6, Genesis 2, 7 then zooms in and details how that creative act came about in specific. To say that it is a contradiction is simply to strain at credulity. The problem of incest. This objection is one of the few that McAfee gives that I have to admit I have struggled with at length myself. However, here I would like to do McAfee a favor and strengthen his argument so as not to deal with the weaker version of the skeptical arguments, but the stronger ones, a courtesy very rarely if ever offered from McAfee. McAfee merely asks why God allows Adam and Eve's children to commit incest, but later strictly forbade it in the laws of Moses, even on pain of death. That is a stout objection, if it were valid. Yet the stronger version goes as follows. If God knew that incest was evil and would eventually ban it, why did he create only two humans in which incest would not just be an option of free will, but a mandatory occurrence for the propagation of the species? Now that is a challenge. And to be completely frank, I'm not sure how equally strong I'm able to answer this objection. However, while I do think this challenge is daunting, I think that one small objection, even if it is successful, does not overcome the mountain of responses we are able to give to pretty much every other comment in the book. Nevertheless, I do not believe it is successful or entirely unanswerable, unanswerable or even that it poses a contradiction within the Bible. The only reason I say it is a challenge to which my answer cannot fully explain is because it asks us about the hidden will and the intentions of God. To ask why God would do a certain thing is an expression of our ignorance, not God's incoherence. I can give suggestions of answers, or point the way to an answer based on what I think we do know about God and his actions in the world, but it would never be more than a speculation, much like I could speculate on what a friend might have done in a certain circumstance from what I already know of him. 
it is not wholly uninformed, it's just not assured. So what is the possible answer? Well, there are several solutions that have been proposed. The most common resolution is simply to say that it was not a sin because it was had not yet been forbidden, yet in the law given to Israel three books later. This, however, seems to be a somewhat problematic answer since neither was murder, rape, lying, adultery, etc. If something is not wrong by the mere fact that the act itself is wrong within the set context, then those actions would also not be wrong until they were expressly forbidden by God. This was, in fact, part of my answer to the moral objection above. It seems to me not only common sense and common decency refutes this. I also think that even the Christian doctrine of the Imago Dei, where people are created in the image of God with a moral sense, also rebuts it, since Adam and Eve would have been image bearers and have known that incest was immoral. One of the answers that I find more compelling, though not most compelling, is the one given by Kyle and Delich in their famous commentary on the Old Testament. Quote, the marriage of brothers and sisters was inevitable in the case of the children of the first men, if the human race was actually to descend from a single pair, and may therefore be justified in the face of the Mosaic prohibition of such marriages on the ground that sons and daughters of Adam represented not merely the family, but the genus, and that it was not till after the rise of several families that the bands of fraternal and conjugal love became distinct from one another and assumed fixed and mutually exclusive forms, the violation of which was a sin. This answer works if we assume that Adam and Eve were created by a special act of creation, that is, that Adam and Eve actually were the only homo sapiens in existence because God created them directly rather than through evolutionary processes. It is possible that incest is only immoral if other options are available. If no other options are available, then incest might be the only option. However. The answer that I find most compelling is due more to my acceptance of evolutionary processes rather than direct human creation. This solution says that incest did not occur because there were other humans around and that Genesis 1 and 2 are not referring to material creation of humanity, but rather their new functional role as the federal heads of God's redemptive plans. Rather than delving into various interpretation issues surrounding Genesis 1 within this context, let me just again point you to the direction of John Walton's lecture reading Genesis through ancient eyes. When we begin to understand how the original author would have understood the text according to a functional ontology of an ancient worldview, we can quite easily see that the author would not mean anything like a scientific or material creation account, something completely absent from ancient worldviews. While this objection is powerful at first, McAfee then, as if almost on cue, muddies the water by pointing to other instances of incest in the Bible, as if they are stories of approval. After bemoaning that God chose to bless Sarah with a child, he states, if the Bible should be used to teach morals, the vast majority of Christians would say that it should, yet it contradicts itself on these moral issues, how could it be considered the good book? End quote, page 59. This is the classic mistake of confusing description with prescription, that is, confusing what the Bible adds as simple narrative facts with moral prescriptions of how God desires us to live. In fact, the great irony of this within this context is that we find out that Abraham is Sarah's half, is Sarah's half brother 
after disobeying God, lying to King Abimelech and allowed and allowing her to be given to Abimelech as a concubine. Furthermore, when Abimelech pleads his innocence to God, God says, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Genesis 26. If the narrative of Abraham's aberrant actions was the equivalent to the Bible's approving of it as a moral example, then why would the narrator have God interject that he knew Abimelech was innocent in this situation and kept him from sinning? Should we go along with McAfee's assumption that just because the Bible is a book used to teach morals, that every passage, especially ones that clearly state otherwise, are prescribing morally injunctive commands? Obviously not. When reading these passages in context, one wonders how McAfee could make such simple errors that ignore not just context that might be revealed after detailed study, but simple facts explicitly stated in the next text, such as God condemning what McAfee says the Bible condones. In fact, as one becomes increasingly familiar with the text, the more it becomes obvious that the Bible is more often than not a text that teaches us what not to do. It is often the character's penitence, not their initial piety, that gives them recognize that gets them recognized as a life worth chronicling. It is the fact that these characters are not worthy of or special that makes the stories of God working through them anyway so inspirational to billions of people. Since the major theme of the Bible is God, God's actions in history to redeem his people, time and time again we see humanity, and indeed God's own chosen people, which he supernaturally intervenes to protect, fall into the same traps of sin and temptation as everyone else, if not more so. To so fundamentally misread an entire book is almost humorous if it wasn't so tragic. Reading the Bible and thinking that it is making only or even mostly positive moral injunctions based on the actions of the people involved when, and in fact, more often than not, the lesson we are to glean is what not to do, would be like reading Romeo and Juliet and coming away thinking that one had just read a comedy divine Jesus. The doctrine of the hypostatic union, that is, the doctrine concerning the two natures of Jesus Christ, is simple enough to understand in principle, but at the same time highly complex in the extended questions such a position might lead to. Footnote. The hypostatic union is probably best defined in the Chalcedon Creed of 451 CE. The council that wrote this creed was responding to several Christological heresies that were spreading in the church regarding the nature of Jesus. The creed confirmed the position of both the New Testament and the earliest church that Jesus was God incarnate and was both fully man and fully God, with no diminishment of or conflict with either nature. It states, quote, We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial, co-essential with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, 
in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusably, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us." End quote. Here we cannot address everything the countless scholars have written whole book series on, so I will, as usual, attempt to shed light on some basic misunderstandings and flaws in McAfee's arguments against it, rather than delving into a lengthy commentary on the doctrine itself. First of all, McAfee reveals his lack of study in stating that the titles Son of God and Son of Man were not references to divinity. This is so uninformed that it may be one of the more unappraised statements of thus far. These titles were almost exclusively used to refer to divinity and Jesus, and that is certainly how the early Jews would have understood them. We notice that when Jesus referred to himself by these very titles, that the Jews did not say, well, duh, you're human, that's what son of man means. What they did do was pick up stones to kill him for blasphemy for call claiming to be equal with God. These are clearly terms of divinity and were readily understood as such by his hearers who understood their usage not only in the Hebrew Bible, but also in their first century colloquial Hebrew. Therefore, for McAfee to state that these terms were not references to divinity would be as erroneous as, saying, as calling the president commander-in-chief has nothing to do with him being the senior officer of the U.S. military forces. Secondly, McAfee seems to think that there is some contradiction in being both man and God. This is easily resolved in two ways, one theological and one by analogy to science. The theological answer is the doctrine of the Incarnation, that is, that the second person of the Trinity, the Son, was incarnated in a total human being. There is no contradiction when the hypostatic union is viewed through the lens of the Incarnation. It is an act of addition, not of dilution, and not even of mixing. Jesus remained entirely divine while he took onto himself human body and everything that makes a human a human. Accusing it of being a contradiction would be like accusing me of committing a contradiction by saying that my wife is both wholly my spouse and wholly my best friend. There was a time when she was only my best friend, but through the act of matrimony she also became my spouse. Does the addition of a wholly new feature mean that there is a contradiction or that one must decline to make room for the other? Not at all. The analogy to science is the common one made to the wavicle, the cheeky term used to summarize the wave-particle duality of light, where light has been discovered to have the properties of both a wave and a particle, a concept vital to the formulation of quantum mechanics. 
There is no contradiction, and in fact, it is a fundamental to much of what we know about the universe. Then on page 60, to add insult to ignorant injury, McAfee tears a verse, as he usually does, drastically out of any context whatsoever and attempts to use it to show that even Jesus denied that he was God. Footnote. What I always find so ironic and somewhat dishonest is that skeptics will, on the one hand, attempt to deny that the New Testament are even accurate descriptions of what Jesus said, but then cherry-pick verses out of context to try to show what Jesus really would have said. Is it any surprise that such ideological cherry-picking almost always severely severs the text from any discernible context in order to force it to mean what they want it to mean? He cites Mark 10:18, where Jesus asked the question, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Without any reference to the circumstances of the conversation that Jesus was having with the rich young ruler, McAfee hopes to slide his jab in unnoticed. He then moves on so quickly because he is either unaware of the massive misstep he has made and thinks his objection is so forceful as to need no word or defense or explanation, or he knows it is an asinine and simply wants to move on before his reader has time to reflect on its anemic vapidity. There are, however, three problems with this objection. The first problem is that within the context of Mark 10, Jesus is conversing with a rich young ruler who has come to him to ask him about what he must do to, intern- to inherit eternal life. The man begins by calling Jesus good teacher, but Jesus, like usual, is just as keen to reveal the intentions of a person's heart before he gives, answers their question. This man, as the conversation will reveal, thinks that his works will be what saves him. He says that he has kept every law since he was a child, a a comment that one can hardly believe is true when we know the heart of man. What Jesus reveals first is that this man is not as righteous as he would like to think himself to be. He comes to Jesus and calls him good, even though he clearly does not believe Jesus is God. Jesus, ever the Socratic, presses the inconsistency home. Why does this man, who will attempt to posture himself as a righteous Jew, call what he believes as a mere man good when only God is good? It is this inconsistency in the comment of the man that Jesus is addressing. He is not saying that the man is wrong that Jesus is good and thus God, but that the man is really not as pious as he would let on if he is willing to attribute to Jesus attributes only possessed by God, while at the same time not confessing that Jesus is God. This leads to the second problem of the argument. The entire point of the passage is in the contrast between the rich young ruler who was not willing to sell everything he owns to follow Jesus precisely because he does not think Jesus is God, whereas the disciples are willing to give up everything to follow him. After Jesus proclaims that it would be easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven, Peter chimes in and says, We left everything to follow you. To which Jesus responds, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, 
who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life End quote mark 10 29 through 30. the contrast is between the rich young ruler who came looking for how he could earn eternal life through flattery but was not willing to part with earthly riches and the disciples who were willing to part with everything to follow jesus only to find out later he was God. It is clear that McAfee is plainly not engaging with the texts and is rather merely cherry-picking verses without any concern as to what they mean in their textual contexts. The final problem for this argument is that this is not the only passage that Jesus speaks about his own nature. Does McAfee think that if Jesus was God, that every statement he ever made about himself would be about or entail that fact? Do we watch the president and wonder if the real president had been abducted because the man we see doesn't with every breath and every encounter tell each person he meets that he is the president? Or do we recognize that the president has more pressing matters than to continually and at all times reassert his role as president just in case we had forgotten who he was? To go further with this theme, there is no shortage of passages where Jesus refers to himself directly as God. We could look at passages where Jesus performs actions that only God could really do, such as when he claims he can forgive sins, a subtlety not lost on the priests who were present, who then muttered among themselves, quote, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? End quote Mark 2.7 or there are passages where Jesus accepts worship as God, such as Matthew 14:33, quote, and those in the boat worshiped him saying, "Truly, you are the son of God." End quote. Yet there are even more telling passages. We could look at the numerous "I am" statements of Jesus found in the Gospel of John. The most prominent of these statements is found in John 8:58 at the end of a dialogue between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. They go back and forth on several points, but when Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, he saw it and was glad, end quote, John 8, 56, the Jews mocked him by asking, quote, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? End quote, John 8, 57. I doubt that they expected the answer that Jesus gave in verse 58 when he said, quote, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am, end quote, John 8:58. The Greek here reads ego eimi. While I know that most of you will not be fluent in Koine Greek, the import of the grammatical construction here should not be missed. In Koine Greek, the person is wrapped up in the verb. This means that eimi is literally rendered I am without the, pr the pronoun ego, I. When the pronoun is attached to the verb, it has the sense of I am as well, so that this whole clause is literally rendered I am, I am, or I am that I am. This is actually an unusual construction in Greek because the pronoun is utterly redundant and we almost never find this superfluous grammatical construction anywhere else beyond Jesus' usage, usage of it. I say almost because we have one extremely important other example of it. This rare construction is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3 where God reveals his personal name, Yahweh, 
which means I am that I am. It is striking that Jesus takes the very personal name of God, a name so holy to the Jews that they did not even dare speak it and never wrote it without abbreviating it in order to honor it, and they most certainly would never claim it for themselves. This was not lost on Jesus' audience. We see the response of the Jews present when Jesus claims this title for himself. Quote, so they picked up stones to throw at him. End quote, John 8.59. As modern English-speaking Americans, the claims to deity that Jesus made may be lost in translation, but they were fully recognized by Jesus' early audiences. Next, McAfee's last few comments in this section reveal another startling lack of comprehension on his part. He claims that the concept of the Incarnation, mentioned above, is especially present in Catholicism and its subsets, page 61. That would be like saying belief in God is especially prevalent among Presbyterians. The Incarnation, one of the orthodox fundamentals of all historic Christianity and expressly stated in the Bible, is not especially prevalent in Catholicism any more than in any other Christian tradition. To so misconstrue the differences between orthodox denominations is such an obvious blunder on McAfee's part that one wonders if he is truly using academic sources or just blissfully coloring outside the lines as he goes. The final problem that I have with this section may be a touch nitpicky, but what are historical facts among friends? McAfee, in his zeal to make any scathing comment about the Bible, seems to muddle his own mocking statements. An insult against the Bible common among anti-theists, one McAfee has made on numerous occasions in conversations with me, is to say that the Old Testament was written by, quote, Bronze Age goat herders, end quote. This remark has almost become a slogan repeated verbatim by atheists the world over. And yet McAfee here says, quote, It seems as though the evolution of Christian thought has steered the religion into a much more Jesus-centric system than it may have been originally intended by its Bronze Age creators. End quote. Page 61. The late Bronze Age, let alone the height of the Bronze Age generally, ended literally hundreds of years before Jesus even lived, let alone had any traditions that developed about him. It truly would be a miracle to have an evolution of Christian, Jesus-centric system of thought over 500 years before Jesus even existed. I only point out this somewhat trivial error to show that while McAfee wants to present himself as a religious, quote, scholar, to call the Christian tradition a Bronze Age development would be on par with saying that McAfee is a medieval atheist. To miss by almost 1,000 years is telling of the kind of research and scholarship presented in McAfee's book. Many Gods versus One God It seems that McAfee has what I like to call a shotgun skepticism. It is on points like this where I think McAfee is more concerned with finding any critique of the Bible to present as plausible, no matter how absurd and understudied it is, and to throw them all up in a blitzkrieg of nonsense. Maybe he is operating under the assumption of something like the law of large numbers, 
that if he can just throw up a barrage of objections, he might overwhelm the theists with a shock and awe atheistic campaign, or that if he tried, tries again, that something might stick. While some cults, notably Joseph Smith and the LDS Church, say that the Bible teaches a plurality of deities, McAfee seems to think that the Bible actually teaches this, and that somehow this means that Yahweh is just viewed as a kind of greater among equals, a position which is actually called henotheism. Here, McAfee is going out largely on his own position where not many religious scholars have found compelling, and for good reasons. There is a kind of wisdom in knowing that if a person has a novel or minority thought about something, particularly something that billions of people have thought a lot about over four millennia in some of the most academic settings in history, and without any new information, then they are most likely mistaken and should curb their hubris in such a bold assertion of it. This is especially so if the assertion seems to ignore nearly everything ever said and thought about the topic by scholars. Here McAfee cites several passages from the Bible that clearly teach the sole existence and oneness of God, and then seeks to pit them against other verses against them. However, in doing so, McAfee is, in effect, being more autobiographical about his incessant desire to disprove the Bible, even to the detriment of his own rational and interpretive mind, rather than stating anything substantial about the texts themselves. Since, as a Christian and a monotheist, I agree with the verses cited for the oneness of God, let us look at a couple of the plurality verses and see if they stack up. Here I will not address all seven passages that he cleaves out of context, but rather will address the overall problem, lack of research and absence of intellectual clarity or charity. The first passage he cites is Genesis 1.26, which reads, quote, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. End quote. While I cannot address in total here what exegetes have written entire volumes on, let me simply point out three of the most common interpretations taken by both conservative and liberal scholars. The first option, taken primarily by conservative Christian scholars, is that this verse represents the earliest appearance of the triune nature of God in the Bible. Even the fact that the chaotic structure of the verse itself is a kind of Trinitarian tercet has led many scholars to say that the Trinitarian nature of God is being implicitly reinforced in the narrative, even by its grammatical presentation. Combine this with the fact that the word for God used in this passage is not the proper name of God, Yahweh, but the title for God, Elohim, and the case for the Trinity becomes even stronger. Why? Well, we can tell from the ending, im, that the structure of Elohim shows itself to be a singular plural, a construction that we do not really have in English. It is a term that is both singular and plural at the same time. The closest we have for this is the royal we, where a person of royalty or high status refers to himself in a plural third person. This shows that while there is only one referent, i.e. God, that the nature of the one referent is itself a plurality. So not only do we have plural pronouns, but we also have a singular referent being shown as internally plural. 
The second option, taken by most Jewish, liberal, or conservative, most liberal scholars, and some conservative scholars, is what is called the plurality of majesty position. This is the position that takes the royal we mentioned above as the interpretive meaning, and that royalty of the time would have referred to themselves in the plural form. Therefore, the author represents God with reverence through the use of the plural pronouns and the plural form of Elohim, such that it was not a statement of ontology, but rather of veneration. The final option, which is held by scholars from all schools of thought, is that the plural title Elohim may refer to either the Trinity or to the plurality of majesty, depending on one's theological convictions, but that the plural pronouns are reference to God and the heavenly courts of angelic beings. This would mean that God would have been decreeing the creation process and commissioning the angels to their roles in the created order, as well as stating that humans, like the angels, would be personal, moral, rational creatures whom God had created. So when God says that he would make humans in our image, God was addressing the heavenly host, decreeing that man would be somehow like God and the angels. Without going into various strengths and weaknesses of these views, the mere fact that no serious biblical scholar, conservative or otherwise, sees this passage as a reference to a plurality of deities should have tempered McAfee's treatment of the passage in such a simplistic and uninformed manner. That he so brazenly pronounced his false position should be evidence enough that McAfee simply did not do the research. The other kind of error is that of his lack of intellectual clarity and charity. This means that where several options are available, McAfee seems to consistently and unswervingly select the weakest option and present it as if it is the only option available to the reader, or at least as the Christian option. A prime example of this can be seen in his treatment of verses like Exodus 18.11, which reads, quote, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. End quote. Here, McAfee is uncharitable, just about simple meaning. To him, this is a 100% statement of the fact that the writer believed that God is greater than all of the other real gods found throughout the universe, when even upon the simplest possible reading, as a, a much more consistent understanding is likely. The author more likely meant simply that God is greater than all of the other gods that people believe in, real or not. This in no way requires the right, that the writer believe that any such deities actually exist. Moreover, the fact that they do not exist would make it even more obvious why God is greater than them, and it would comport itself with the rest of the Bible's own view on the subject. We see the Bible making this explicit in Isaiah when the prophet condemns the idol makers. Quote, he cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire and the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to worship it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. End quote, Isaiah 44, 14 through 17. 
This is declared even more unequivocally in Jeremiah. Do men make their own gods? Yes, but they are not gods. End quote, Jeremiah 16.20. In fact, we use this kind of language to talk about people's perception of their deities even today. As a Christian, I can speak of the gods of Hinduism without committing myself to their actual existence. I would simply be referring to the supposed gods which many Hindus venerate. We can also mean the term God in the sense to refer to realities that are not a personal deity like God, but rather hold sway over people's lives like the gods of money, power, greed, drugs, sex, relationships, etc. It is in these senses that the use of the words gods in the Bible is almost an exact synonym for the worst use of the words idols. As we have seen throughout this chapter, that McAfee seems to present these passages without any interaction with the grammar, theology, history, or any other kind of context found around these verses, or even without regard to any of the work done by scholars the world over to adequately interpret these passages in those very contexts, is a gaffe we might expect from a paper submitted for credit in a freshman introduction to religion class, but not something one should consider worthy of published print by a man who is a self-proclaimed scholar of religion. Well, that's about all the time we have for today. Thank you again for joining us. Again, if you have any questions or comments, you can always reach me on my blog at www.logicaltheism.blogspot.com. Don't forget the hyphen, www.logical-theism.blogspot.com. Email me at tylervella at gmail.com or Join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash groups slash the Freed Thinker Podcast. Join us again next time as we continue our uh, book review of David McAfee's book, Disproving Christianity and Other Secular Writings, as we look through his next chapter, Minor Contradictions. Thank you all and hope you have a great weekend.